I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What would you say if someone asks you, what makes Christianity different from any other religion? A lot of us would probably begin to answer that question by saying that as Christians, we believe that God created the world out of nothing and made it good. Or that the Father sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners that he died for our sins and rose again the third day, or that he inspired the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments by the Holy Spirit, and so on. Christians, that is, are people who accept the church's teachings and believe the truth about God and his work in the world. I'm sure I've answered people in this way before when asked. This is important stuff. A Christian cannot be less than someone who believes the truth. But I don't think anymore that this is the main thing that sets Christians apart. The thing that is truly unique about our Christian faith is that it is a participation, a real sharing in the life of God himself. No other religion can lay claim to this, nor even attempts to. For Jesus did not just say, I am the truth, but what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So then what does that mean for us who have been baptized into him, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and who follow him? It means that Christianity, the Christian faith, is the true way of life. It's a way of life. When we were baptized, we were adopted as beloved sons and daughters into the royal household of God. And as every household does, certainly mine does, and I'm sure yours does as well, the household of God has its own customs and expectations, its own celebrations and rhythms and values that any new member of that house, or indeed even a long-term guest, would need to adjust themselves to if they're going to fit in and be at home. Now, our passage from the book of Acts this morning is an image, an icon, if you will, of exactly that. It shows us the church, the household of God, newly born after Pentecost, living out the true way of life and the results of that on their wider world around them. This passage has functioned throughout Christian history as a kind of normative pattern for the church in every land and generation, challenging us to imitate and embody it afresh, even here in 21st century America, in our own homes and parishes and dioceses. So we're going to be looking at three points about this apostolic way of life. First, how it's ordered vertically to the love of God. Second, how it's ordered horizontally to the love of our neighbors. And third, the results of that way of life in the world around us. So first of all, how was their common life ordered to the love of the triune God? Now, the text doesn't provide us with a whole lot of detail. It just gives us three basic categories or activities that the church was engaged in. St. Luke writes that those who have been baptized devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. I want to look first at that last one, the prayers, 
If you're not looking closely at the text, you're liable to see just prayers. Like, well, yeah, of course they were praying. There are Christians. But if you look very closely at it, you'll see that definite article there, the, the prayers, which actually makes a big difference. What it's referring to here is the prayers, the set liturgical prayer offices of Israel through the temple worship and the synagogue worship of the time. Now, God had commanded these offerings from his people in the Old Covenant to sanctify the passage of time, to ingrain in his people the habit of praise and continually returning to him. These regular offerings of prayer and praise, the reading of Scripture, and the chanting of the Psalms with incense each morning, midday, and evening was the stable, almost invariable expression of Israel's covenant loyalty to God. It was their way of offering the Father the honor that was due to him. Christians both East and West have continued to offer these set liturgical prayers with relatively little change ever since. If you've been an Episcopalian for a while, you'll know exactly where I'm going with this. We've inherited this practice in our tradition, in the Book of Common Prayer, in the offices of morning and evening prayer, otherwise known as matins and evensong. Now, back in the 16th century, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer brilliantly con condensed the complex and rather unwieldy sevenfold monastic office into just two morning and evening prayer, prayed by clergy and layperson alike, meant to unite the entire nation in common prayer and to take them through the entirety of Scripture every year and the Psalter every month. It was an ambitious project, to be sure. Now, you might have tried praying the daily office before, whether in the book itself or in some app. There's a number of apps available for it. And after a while, found yourself wishing that you could be watching paint dry instead or worse, tempted to watch golf on TV. Uh, I apologize to the golf fans in the room. I understand that there are people who do that. I don't understand. <laughs> Encountering boredom in prayer is a universal experience, and needing to push through it is part of the point. It's meant to form our souls long-term in the habits of praise and thanksgiving to God ingraining within us the story and rhythm of Holy Scripture, whether we feel like it on a given day or not. I once heard a Jewish man reminiscing about his experience as a boy in Hebrew school. They would make the children go to mincha, midday prayers, every day. I had a lot of chutzpah as a boy, he said. So one day when it came time for the prayers, I approached my rabbi and said, with a lot of swagger, Rabbi Moshe, I don't feel like going to Mincha today. The rabbi's response, he said, changed his life. Ah, the rabbi replied, Shmuel doesn't feel like going to prayer today. So what? These two words changed his life. He never forgot them. Now, whenever that childish part of him piped up saying, I don't feel like it, to something he knew he needed to do, he hears that voice of his rabbi in the back of his head saying, So what? Maybe more of us need to learn those two words, add them to our inner vocabulary. Secondly, there was the breaking of bread. Despite this taking place in the homes of the faithful, it's not referring to mere dinner parties, but to the celebration of the Eucharist, what we're doing here. That word, remembrance, 
that Christ says when he instituted the Eucharist as my remembrance was actually a word used in the Greek Old Testament to refer to the sacrifices that God commanded of his people, saying, do these things as my remembrances. What Jesus was telling us as his disciples was that this, the Eucharist, was to be the sacrifice of the new covenant that would fulfill, that is, fill up to overflowing the purpose of the sacrifices of the old covenant, especially the Passover and the Day of Atonement. Whereas the prayers really emphasize our relationship to the Father, our dutiful relationship as his sons and daughters, the Eucharist really puts Christ at the center, Christ who is both victim and priest in the Eucharistic feast. In the Eucharist, at least each Sunday, the Lord's Day, we're invited to richly participate in his once-for-all sacrifice at Calvary and in the joyful celebration of his resurrection on the third day. In union with Christ crucified, we offer up ourselves, our souls and bodies, as the liturgy says, our substance, our time, efforts, and everything we have and are. And Christ, in return, offers the whole of himself back to us in the body and the blood, strengthening and cleansing us, uniting us more and more deeply with his sacred humanity. And third, it says that the baptized devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Now, what do we today call that record of the apostles' teaching and witness? The Scriptures, right? The Holy Bible. But notice that the word Luke here uses is devotion. They devoted themselves. It's a much stronger feeling word to me than mere Bible study. Now, when I'm devoted to something or a teaching or a particular story, I'm taking it home with me. I'm meditating on it, chewing on it inwardly memorizing its best lines. I might even prayerfully daydream myself into the midst of the story as though I were one of its characters. And whether consciously or not, I'm absorbing all the potential implications for my life. As a kid, I did this all the time with my favorite TV shows, movies, and books, like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. You know, you, you probably did the same as a kid. It came naturally, didn't it? You know, you don't have to stop doing that just because you're grown up. As Christians, we're encouraged to do this with the Bible above anything else, with a unique confidence that when we approach it humbly, reverently, and prayerfully, the same Holy Spirit who inspired its contents will reveal to us in its pages the living Christ, the Word of God, who is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of bones and marrows, of soul and spirit, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is, we believe that when we read the Word of God this way, the Word of God reads us, draws us into an ongoing conversation, transforming us in the process of that conversation with Him. This intensely personal relationship with, with God, mediated through the Holy Spirit, whereas the others were public, this personal relationship with God then leads us into fellowship. The Holy Spirit sends us out into loving service to our neighbors as an expression of our faith and hope in God, and a constant recollection, a remembrance of his presence overshadowing us in, in our lives. Now, this threefold pattern of Christian faithfulness, the office, the Eucharist, and personal devotion based on the Scriptures became known as the Church's rule of life. 
That word rule coming from the Latin word regula, meaning a ruler or a measure to measure our spiritual health and balance against. You might have heard that word regular used, or regular used in connection with a militia, like a regular militia, reliable frontline soldiers. That is applicable to us as Christians living this rule of prayer, where those that the Lord knows he can call upon to stand at the front lines in prayer and in loving service to him. Wherever you find Catholic-minded Christians, members of the household of God, east or west, whether Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Anglican, no matter how diverse the particulars of their worship, you'll find them embodying this same threefold pattern or structure of prayer, of life of discipleship. In short, living under the church's threefold rule enables us to better love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Which leads us to our second point. Their way of life was rightly ordered horizontally toward one another, enabling them to love their neighbors as themselves. St. Luke says that awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. What wonders and signs was he speaking of? Well, there were miraculous healings, of course, and yes, even unlearned people praising God in languages they had never studied. But there was another miracle God was working through the apostolic church that was, I believe, on a totally different order of magnitude. And here's what the text says. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were in one accord. And later in chapter 4, we read that the multitude of the faithful were of one heart and one soul. Ancient people would have immediately recognized this as the language of friendship. It was the Greek philosopher Aristotle who once said that a friend is a single soul shared in two bodies, and elsewhere that your friend is your alter ego, another self, that is a neighbor that you love as yourself, someone you wish good to for their own sake and not just because of what they can do for you. True friends are iron sharpening iron, or as Aristotle might say, they make each other more noble in the pursuit of a common higher end or purpose. Have you ever had someone like that for you? A real friend, as true in the bad times as the good? They're hard to come by, aren't they? These early Christians, thousands of them, had become friends. Not casual acquaintances who vaguely tolerated each other, not mere business partners or buds who drink and watch the game together, but genuine friends, united in the pursuit of God, sharing life together under the church's common rule. The ancients believed that pairs of true friends were so uncommon that you could count on your hands the number that have existed throughout human history. For them then, there wasn't a doubt that what they witnessed among the Christians in Jerusalem was a miracle of miracles. What less than the grace of God Almighty could overcome in so many people the pride, vanity, fear, apathy, and petty selfishness that so often prevent true friendships from developing among us? You might have heard the old joke that Jesus' greatest miracle was the fact that he had 12 close friends at the age of 30. It's funny, but it hits close to home. I'm there myself. Whether we realize it or not, we crave this deep kind of friendship more than almost anything. It's what makes life most worth living. The philosophers were agreed. 
There's nothing on this earth to be prized more than true friendship, and that without friends, even the most agreeable pursuits become tedious. But even so, fewer of us are attaining to that friendship now than almost ever before. A number of sociologists following a 2021 survey have begun to describe America as being in the midst of what they're calling a friendship recession. The survey found that since 1990, only half as many people now as 30 years ago report having at least six close friends, down to just about a quarter of the population. Something good to thank God about if you are one of those lucky few. And the number who reported having no close friends leapt from 3 to 15 percent. It quintupled in the same period. Americans, the survey find, are now spending less than half as much time with their friends and more than twice as much time alone as they were even just a decade ago. What the consequences of this can be on our social, emotional, and spiritual health, we can only guess, but it's not good. It'd be easy to blame the friendship recession on the smartphone, social media, politics, and pandemics, and no doubt these are all contributing factors. They make friendship hard. But if you are not aiming up in life, if you're not seeking anything higher than yourself, true friendship is not merely hard. It's impossible. I believe that's the critical factor that's driving our friendship recession. Americans are no longer aiming up for God or anything else for that matter. And without that vertical aspect, our horizontal relationships will inevitably suffer. And the reverse is also true. It's because those first Christians were so committed to pursuing the love of God at any cost that deep friendships between them were multiplied so magnificently. So here's my final point. The Jerusalem church sharing this true way of life that enabled them to love God with everything they had and were and to love their neighbors as themselves. What was the result or fruit of that? Here's what the text says. Day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And no wonder, right? When their neighbors looked at the church, they saw a glimpse of paradise on earth. Somehow, these Christians walked in friendship with God and with one another, something like what Adam and Eve must have done in the garden with God. Who wouldn't want to be part of that? But a true and deep friendship with God will not happen by accident, my friends. The devil, with the help of the world and your fleshly desires, is going to do everything in his power to prevent it. You can count on it. It is a way of life that must be pursued and cultivated intentionally. Are you willing to reorder your life, your priorities, even your calendar, whatever necessary to make it happen? True friendships with others also, especially Christian friendships, will not happen by accident, especially not here in 21st century America. Almost everything is working against you. Does it matter enough to you to prioritize them, to put down your cell phones, to gather together with friends? to cultivate these friendships. But you know, as much as we have working against us, and there is a lot, do you know what God says to us? He says, He that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And on the night before he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ prayed for us and is praying still for the one thing 
that he desires for us more than anything else. Here's what he is praying. Father, may they all be one, just as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.